2: Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we'll be speaking with Professor Laura Leff about her recent book, Well Worth Saving, American University's Life and Death Decisions of Refugees from Nazi Europe, which explores how American universities made decisions about which scholars fleeing Nazi-occupied Europe were worth saving and those who were left to die. Professor Leff is the Associate Director of the Jewish Studies Program and an Associate Professor of Journalism at Northeastern University. Laura Leff, welcome to That Said.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: So I'd like to begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to study this area of academic study?
1: So I I spent the first part of my career as a journalist, as a professional journalist, and my last professional journalism job was um, in Hartford, Connecticut, as an editor at the Hartford Current, and Um, When I was there, I was an adjunct at uh, Southern Connecticut State University Journalism School, and I was teaching a beginning journalism class. And the textbook that we were using included uh, two paragraphs from a book by a very well-known scholar named Deborah Lipstadt, um, about the American press's coverage of the Holocaust while it was happening. And what, um, Lipstadt had found was that there were lots of news stories, um, in American newspapers at the time. Um, but most of them were. Um, inside the newspaper, they were not considered to be front page stories, even though they were very detailed and timely. And basically from reading it, you could have a very good idea of what was going on in Europe at the time. Um, and so this surprised me. I mean, I, I grew up Jewish. Um, I obviously had, you know, I had some family who'd been in the, in the Holocaust, but this had never been, um, been an interest, but I would not say a preoccupation of mine, but I found her results very surprising because I had grown up being taught that Americans didn't know about the Holocaust while it was happening. Um, So I was really shocked to discover it was in major American newspapers. And then I was also surprised as a journalist that these were inside stories that made no sense to me. I mean, I read them. They're talking about millions of people being killed in gas chambers, and they're like on page 19. So how could this be? So when I decided to move from being a professional journalist to being an academic and teaching at Northeastern a School of Journalism, um, I decided that what I wanted to write about was to try and answer those two, two questions. You know, why was, could I have been taught that this was something Americans didn't know about when it was in major American newspapers, and why did journalists not consider this to be an important story? So... I decided to do this by looking at the New York Times for kind of the obvious reasons. It's the New York Times. They covered a lot of international affairs owned by a Jewish family. Um, And that was so that was my first book. That was how I got initially into what I think is now my area of expertise, which is the American response to the Holocaust.
2: And so that first book for the listening audience is Buried by the Times, the Holocaust and America's Most Important newspaper. And maybe one day we'll get around to talking about that book too. So how did you come to choose this book? And in three sentences, give us what this book is about, and then we'll sort of dive into it in detail.
1: Right. So um, when I, you know, and I think this is the way a lot of researchers work, when I'm doing very by the times, I'm coming across other sort of tantalizing things. And one of the tantalizing things that I found was when I looked at the papers of any sort of major Jewish figures of this time period, you know, particularly those of German ancestries, there was invariably a folder that said refugees or something like it on it. And when I looked at those folders, it were these letters from people in Germany and Austria and Czechoslovakia and France. Um, friends or relatives who were asking the American for help, um, help in getting them out. And this was true of the Salzberger and Ox family that owned the New York Times, both on, on sort of both sides of the family. They were of German Jewish ancestry. So they also were receiving these letters. And it seemed to me that this was an understudied area that mostly we had gotten kind of triumphalist stories about wonderful Jewish farmers who helped their relatives in Poland, but that there was actually a much broader thing that going on that probably didn't have as happy results. Um, and so I moved into, into that area. And one of the, th- I mean, I came across, I think, a lot of interesting things and did a, a variety of academic articles on lawyers' responses and journalists' response and uh, medical doctors' responses. But the thing that struck me as both the most interesting and the one with the most sort of record behind it um, was the attempt to get American universities to make offers to German, um, Jewish or non-Aryan, meaning people who had some Jewish um, ancestry but were not necessarily part of the Jewish community, um, the attempt to get them offers from American universities so they could, and this is the other interesting part of it, immigrate outside of the quota system. Um, there was a special provision in the immigration law of 1924 that basically said if you were a pro- professor in a foreign university and you plan to come to the United States and be a professor here, um, then you at least had the possibility of getting what was called a non-quota visa, which meant you weren't subject to the limitations that Um, the Congress had put on immigration in the 1920s. So that also seemed to be, you know, this was a way, and and I wouldn't say get around the immigration law, because this was part of the immigration law, but it was another opportunity that a lot of people didn't talk about in talking about the the quota limits. Um, And then I also realized that there was just an abundant, I would say, overwhelming record, um, because there was a organization that started in 1933 in New York that set out to try and get American universities to make these kind of offers. Um, They had records in the New York Public Library. They had received over 6,000 applications. So each one of those, when I started looking at those records, um, were these, you know, wrenching stories of academics, you know, people like me, um, who were trying to escape um, the worst possible conditions in Europe. So that was kind of how I decided that the, the next book, even though I had thought I was not going to do any more of this, I must say, um, I, you know, it just was, it it just, I just felt like it had to be done.
2: And it's a great book. And we'll delve into greater detail in many of the points that you just raised. But before we sort of turn to the heart of the book. Can you give us, as a teacher, uh, a little bit of a history lesson on immigration, maybe starting with the 1924 Act amended in 27? So people have a sense of what is the system that Congress put in place in the 20s and why they put it in place.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, before the 1920s, um, the United States had had a, an, an open immigration system. I mean, there were some criteria for Um, Not admission or for being sent back if you came to Ellis Island, but for the most part, um, we wanted immigrants. Most people who chose to come to the United States if they could put together the boat fair came and were admitted to the United States. Um, At the beginning of the 1920s, and I think this was A result of fear of radicals, of xenophobia, um, and then of racism directed against primarily people from um, Southern Europe, so Italians, and people from Eastern Europe who were mostly... Jews, um, there was a feeling that we'd gone from you know immigration of people from Germany and England and Ireland that we liked to um, immigration of people from who were swarthy who had funny religions who looked different um, so the Congress, uh, both in nineteen twenty one and then a, again in nineteen twenty four did for the first time in u s history put an overall limit on the number of people who could come to the United States. Um, under the quota system. So it was now it was just 159,000 a year, when during our opener immigration, uh, around the turn of the century, we were getting about a million people a year. So this was a very significant um, drop. And then additionally, because they wanted to make sure that it was the right kind of people who came to the United States, um, they decided to also impose country by country quotas. Um, so in addition to the 159 thousand, it also meant that for each country individually, there was a limit on how many people who could come a year. These are all annual limits. And what they did was they set it to uh, eventually the percentage of people who were in the country in 1890. So that's significant, because that was before this great Wave of immigration. Um, two percent of the number of people from that country living in the United States in 1890, that would be the country by country quota. And so some of them were very, very tight. Um, and I'll give you one and you will immediately understand the significance of this. But, um, from Poland, for example, um, it was under 700 a year, um, could come to the United States as a result of the new limitations as put in place by the the quota system,
2: and uh, we should add, not insignificantly, that in 1892 was it that the Chinese exclusion yeah. acts went into effect, and they were excluded altogether. And that was in '24 expanded to other Asian
1: countries. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, it was the Japanese, and then people from I think called like the Bur- Burma, something or other. was kind of a, a strange description that we don't use anymore, but it basically means countries like Afghanistan, you know, other parts of Asia, and they were excluded entirely.
2: All right, so we're in the 1920s. We've got this 80% drop in the number of people who can come in under the visa system, numerically determined, as you said, by 2% of the population in 1890. And then you've started talking about the non- Quota visa. So the quota visas are this 2% of the population of 1890, and then non-quota visas, they have sort of three categories, right? Close relatives of U.S. citizens, right. Western Hemisphere immigrants. Yes.
1: Ironically, we were more than happy to take people from um, Latin South America and Central America in, in the 1930s. Yeah. Mexicans so were completely There was no limit on on immigration from either the Southern Hemisphere or from um, Canada.
2: Right. No Mexican border wall was no. was <laughs> needed. No. Actually, they were encouraged for industry employment reasons. Also, and then, so then this third category of professors and clergy. So that's what we are going to be talking about throughout the course of this hour. Tell us okay. about how the professors and clergy non visa issue plays out.
1: Um, So, yeah, so there is a provision in the 1924 law, as I said, that allows um, someone who'd been teaching for two years um, prior to immigration at a university and they had some other categories and plan to continue their vocation in the United States um, could immigrate outside of this quota system. And there was no limit on it. And then they also could Um, get non-quota visas for their wives. And oddly, kind of horrifically, they actually meant wives. This did not apply to husbands of female scholars um, and their minor children. So any uh, who are unmarried. So any child who is under 18 um, also could get a non-quota visa. Um, So that was, I mean, that was the lifeline For these scholars who also, and this is, I think, another part of the reason I was particularly interested in this immigration, is that because of a Nazi law in April of 1933, so just, you know, a few months after Hitler had become chancellor, um, all Jews and non-Aryans were, could no longer work for the German government in any capacity, And all German universities were state-run. So that means almost immediately, it was pretty much done by the end of 1933, um, that anyone who was Jewish Mm -hmm. or non-Aryan, and some people who were politically suspect too, were fired from their university position. So this immigration or attempt at at emigration started very early. Um, So you start getting the letters, the committees being set up, um, in the first half of 1933.
2: So let's just break down this sentence a little bit, which is to say that clergy and professors who were practicing their profession two years prior to applying for this non quota visa, yeah. and who had the intent to carry on that profession in the U.S. were in theory just allowed to come. If they got, without, a
1: visa. I mean, those yeah, are the without, grounds for giving them a visa.
2: Exactly. In theory, they were allowed to come. That was the grounds for the non-quota visa entry into the U.S. And there was no numeric limitation. So in some sense, as written, the black letter law of it, as they say, this was wonderful. This is an open opportunity for scholars who were in perilous positions to come. But as they say, not so fast. Right. (laughs) Right. And so notwithstanding the black letter law of uh, 1924 Immigration Act, tell us how the State Department started interpreting that language.
1: And I should just say as a coda to that, the State Department did this whenever they possibly had an opportunity, which by what I mean there was, as you said, the black letter law, but if they could figure out an administrative way to make it hard or impossible for people to immigrate, despite what the law said, they did it. Um, so in terms of the quota itself, I mean, and this is a, a different and in, important subject. I just actually wrote a law review article on this, believe it or not, that what they um, they kept, I mean, the quotas were not filled. Um, because of the way the State Department interpreted the law. So even though there are these limits, they made it even less than that. Um, Throughout this period, it was fewer than um, seven. It was about filled about 17 percent, all of the quotas. So even if we had just allowed people in up to the quota, we probably would have been able to admit about 350,000 additional people. But that's an aside. Um, They did the same thing with the non-quota visas. Um, So one thing that was done was that there was this two-year teaching requirement. Um, But if you were, you know, it's 1936 and you're trying to immigrate, even if you had started earlier, that meant you'd been fired in 1933. You hadn't been teaching continuously So that became grounds to disqualify people. The fact that they were fired from their position meant they hadn't been teaching continuously. And the consuls who were making these decisions abroad, that's where the the decisions were made, were saying, yep, sorry, doesn't fit. We're not going to to let you in. That was one way they did it. They also...
2: So, so Laurel, just to be be clear, the fact that you were not teaching, not because you chose to Become a gardener, but because you were fired, was beside the point for the State Department.
1: Yes, I mean again, these what's partly interesting, and I think why a lot of people have had trouble getting their their um, arms around this is that the decisions were made by an individual consul person in one of the consuls abroad. So if you're in Germany, you go to the Hamburg consulate, and you're sitting across from a consular official. And that's the person who's going to be making the decision. Um, and they don't even have to explain themselves, so the only reason we figure out that these are the grounds for which they're saying we're not going to give this professor who's sitting across from me a uh, visa is because of the refugee advocacy organizations who took up some of these people's cases and then started writing and saying, "Why did you deny this person a visa you know or the Rockefeller Foundation or uh, some of the or the universities in some cases would begin making inquiries in it. It would come back from an individual official saying, well, sorry, you know, they hadn't been teaching continuously. Now, a few of the consular officials decided that these people were on furlough and therefore could give them visas. Um, But the vast majority of the consulates did not make that decision. They just said, oh, sorry you know, we don't care why you're not teaching. This is a way for us. Because the goal of the State Department was to keep immigration as low as possible, just no matter what was happening in Europe.
2: So you were saying part one was you had to teach two years prior to the application. And not was saying the fact that people were fired and couldn't be teaching, that's how the State Department interpreted it. Then the second part of this was Intent to carry on your profession in the US. So if you can meet part one, you hadn't yet been fired because you were in Belgium, say, right. and they hadn't yet fired the Jews from the universities in Belgium. You still had this intent to carry on your profession. Tell us about that.
1: Right. So again, this is, that's all the law says. You have to have an intent. So someone could say, yes, I want to continue to be a professor when I come to the United States. And that might have been good enough, but it wasn't good enough for the state department. They decided that you had to, and at first it was one, a one year offer Then they then upped it to two years. Um, you had to have an offer from an American university saying that you were going to be on their faculty and you, it had to be And this again, State Department interpretation, it had to be on the teaching faculty. Um, If you were going to be a researcher or a a librarian, an archivist, that wasn't good enough. You had to have an offer um, to be in a classroom at an American university in order to qualify for this non-quota visa.
2: So you have the Black Letter Law of 24. You have the State Department really imposing conditions. I don't think Congress necessarily intended, although you never know what the intent of Congress is. And you have the State Department. I don't know how to ask the question other than to say, why? Why was the State Department? I mean, when I read the book, I thought, well, were they indifferent? Were they just flat out anti-Semitic? Was there national security fears? I know after the 1917 Bolshevik revolution, there was a notion that Jews and Bolsheviks and communism all were one big package, and we didn't want those types here. So try to explain for us, first, the State Department, why was it that? And then I'd love your answer to the question of the White House and what it was doing. So I remember asking Doris Kearns Goodwin, a question about what was up with Roosevelt, and the Jews, and her answer, which I found unacceptable was, well, he had a blind spot. I mean, <laughs> right. That, that's a hell of a blind spot. So take us through this, your understanding of what was going on in the State Department. And you can use my categories of indifference, antisemitism, security, whatever you choose. Well, and then, then take com- us to the White House.
1: Some combination of all. Um, although I think at the root of it is, you know, we have ah. to remember who was in the State Department in the 1920s and the 1930s. So this was one of the Bastions of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant elite. Um, So, if you were of that class, of that background, one of the professions that was acceptable for you to have was in the State Department, and that was overwhelming. You know, these were mostly you know people who had gone to the elite boarding schools, Andover, Exeter, and then went on to Harvard and Yale, and my alma mater, Princeton. Um, And they, you know, had certain um, attitudes about, I mean, they thought their culture was absolutely the superior one. You know, this is sort of where the eugenics movement comes from as well. Um, And that anyone who was going to threaten that, dilute that, um, was going to harm the United States. So as a result of that attitude, they really wanted as few of those kind of people, um, radicals, foreigners into the United States. But I think at this period, there was also a particular antipathy um, towards Jews, frankly. And the reason for that is that at this moment, it was Jews who seemed to them to be threatening their dominance of American society. There had been um, a change in the way people were admitted to elite Ivy League institutions, Yale, Harvard, um, again, Princeton. And um, it had gone from where you took a test and anybody who took a test could be admitted. But originally the test included Latin and Greek. So if you were a kid on the Lower East Side, you weren't learning Latin and Greek, so you couldn't apply and get into these Ivy League schools. But when they eliminated that requirement, but it was still just a test, um, a lot of these new immigrant children did very well and started getting into these institutions in what were considered to be disproportionate and harmful numbers. Um, So by the 1920s, Columbia was, which had, you know, been maybe what three, four, five percent Jewish, was now 40 percent Jewish. Harvard was 20 percent Jewish. Um, Yale and Princeton were a little lower, but still much more than they had been before. And um, so these universities started to move to change that, too. But I mentioned that because that was where the WASP elite saw the danger coming from. Um And it didn't, so they, and they saw, you know, whether it was Lower East Side Jews, although there's a, you know, there's a little, unlike in Germany where it's like about race and ancestry, there's a little bit more flexibility about this in the United States. So if you were, um had the proper manners and maybe were more from a, a upper class background, as long as there were not too many of you, then it was acceptable for you to be in these institutions. But when all the pressure, you know, so that, the, when the pressure came to start admitting foreign scholars, Jews from Europe who were trying to immigrate, it threatened what there was. And this is I am not making this up. There was a one Jew rule. Um, you know, if you you could have one Jew on a fa- first a faculty, then they, you know, um, became more liberal and had it on a department that's okay you know it's contained but if you start letting another one in one of these foreign scholars then all of a sudden you're getting a group um mentality perhaps and you'll be un- overrun by jews so the state department you know and this you know is throughout their views of the immigration system is we are going to do whatever we can and you know they're they're law abiding in the sense of They're not, I mean, they're going to try and follow the rules, figure out a way to um, interpret the rules, to use the rules for this end. But the reason for the end, I think, was definitely to try and limit the immigration of Jews to the United States.
2: All right. So we've got the State Department, for these various reasons, working very hard to limit the number of people who can come. They create this Interdepartmental Advisory Committee, which was a bureaucratic nightmare. If you, anyone who's worked in the government knows, when you hear the word interdepartmental, it means <laughs> never in our lifetime. Right. Um,
1: six agencies, six different who had
2: to come to consensus. And then there was all these forms from ABC, or BCD that really bureaucratized the system. But Congress passed this law and the President of the United States signed it. And it's pretty transparent what going on in the state department in Washington and in the consular offices so the question is what was up at the white house what was the view the view always was that eleanor roosevelt was a advocate and franklin roosevelt less so and the explanations for why he was so hesitant has never been clear to me so tell us a little bit about what you think was going on in the white house while the state department was I think, acting in bad faith throughout this period for all of the reasons that you laid out.
1: So, I mean, the first thing I should just say is that in my area, American response to the Holocaust, this is the most sensitive issue. Um, there are a lot of people in the in the academy or authors like Doris Kearns Goodwin who, for very, very good reasons, are big supporters of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, I mean, in a lot of ways, he was really a fantastic president, and I, I still think that. Um, was it a blind spot? Um, as she said, I, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that Roosevelt was also from this background, right? He was also a member you know, of this elite. Um, when he was a student at Harvard, he was supportive of the university's president's attempt to actually impose a formal quota system. Um, they actually ended up not doing that at Harvard, but because there had been backlash and then they figured out a way to do it without it being a formal quota, but he was a supporter of that. Um, you know, this was his background. And even though I think in some ways, um, he overcame his background and and maybe more so than um, some of the other people, even people around him, um, you know, and he did have Jewish advisors around him. But I don't think he ever completely shed that sense of um, Jews are different. They're not like us. Um, they're not they don't value the same things we value. And so, and I think this is both, you know, it's somewhat hard to get at this because as lots of historians have pointed out, he was not someone to write things down. You know, you don't really on any issue really get from the historical record, a real sense of what Roosevelt was really thinking and feeling. But I think the best evidence of it is who he appointed to these positions um, that had control over these life and death issues having to do with immigration and kept in these positions um, so that, you know, most people point to Breckenridge Long, who was assistant secretary of state and who was in charge of the visa division and did, in fact, write a memo in 1940, basically slaying out this was the um, administration's strategy, um, or at least the State Department's strategy was to postpone and postpone and postpone and delay as long as possible through administrative means, the issuing of visas. And of course, 1940 is a time when the, when the, the machinery of the Holocaust had been put into to place and people knew people were being deported to Poland. And yet that was the State Department's philosophy. Um, you know, people, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, actually, who's, I think, a little bit more of an ambiguous figure than is sometimes depicted on the refugee issue. But she did go to Roosevelt and say, you know, he's an anti-Semite, speaking of Breckinridge long But Breckinridge long stayed in his position until the beginning of 1944, when another scandal kind of booted him out. Um The other example is Isaiah Bowman, um, who was president of John Hopkins University, who was a eugenicist, um, who had actually imposed the one Jew rule when he was president of John Hopkins. Um, He was uh, Roosevelt's chief advisor on refugee resettlement. You know, he was the guy who was telling Roosevelt we could maybe we could move some Jews to Venezuela or to Africa, or mostly he was telling them you cannot move any Jews to any of these other colonies because they're you know, it's only I mean and I'm saying what he said, not what I in any way believe, but, you know, only a dark skinned people can live in the tropics. You know, the Jews will go there and they're too weak and they're not farmers and they can't possibly live here and they can't possibly live there. Um, And so any of the, you know, even aside from the workings of the immigration system, any attempts to sort of move when things started get really bad in 1938, 39 and 40, um, to do large movements of people, Bowman was the person in um, Roosevelt's ear saying, "You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it." And you have to say, why did why was this the person Franklin Roosevelt picked to be chief of his, his chief advisor on refugee resettlement issues?
2: It's interesting with all this white shoe, patrician behavior you have in England, the Cambridge spies, the people who came out of that exact same background, being the most notorious spies that ever existed in English history. So, so much for breeding. So, and just to put a period on the point you're making, you write that a quarter of all Jews killed died between 1942 and 43, and that of the 985 applications received By the State Department in 1941, more than 800 were rejected.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, and again, we have to say that the State Department had this information. The State Department knew what was going on. They understood what it, at this point, You know, in 1935, you didn't know that this was going to mean death. You did mean, know that people had lost their jobs, had lost their livelihood, were, you know, subject to random violence, I mean, you knew all of that. You didn't necessarily know they were on their, that they would be killed. By the time you get to 1941 and 42, you know that they're being killed, And, and the way that we know that they know they're being killed is, again, these, you know, some of these refugee organizations who are trying to get both visas and um university offers for some of these scholars are communicating with them in the ghettos right they have addresses for them in ghettos um i mean it, there's not um a s- secrecy about it and and again reading what's being written and i'm not saying 100% of the people knew because 100% of the people never know anything but You can tell from the the tone of the communications that what their their general understanding is and their general understanding is if we aren't able to get this person a visa within this amount of time, they are likely to be put on a train sent to Poland, perhaps. Killed immediately, you know, so that's the case in, in for some people, especially when you get to 1942. But at the very, in the earlier period, they know they were going to be put in disease, starvation ridden ghettos where they were likely going to die.
2: So we have the State Department acting its way. We have the White House being at least willfully blind, indifferent, uh, perhaps worse. You have the consular offices in the countries abroad comprised of the same type of person who exercised the same either indifference, anti-Semitism or fear of national security.
1: There is, you know, they were given orders. You will do better in your career if you turn away people. That that is what we want. That is what's going to lead to promotions, not Filling up the quotas, just just to to add that to the to the person who is sitting across the table from a family in Hamburg, deciding whether or not they're going to issue this visa.
2: Were there any righteous council generals in the U.S. system? We studied in our class here in a prior podcast the book Picasso's War, uh, which was about the introduction of art, uh, modern art, into America, and we learned about uh, the Portuguese. Consul General Aristides de Sousa-Mendez, who, notwithstanding the edict of Salazar, the dictator of Portugal, he issued visas in any way, and this is how many of the Jewish art dealers got out. Were there similar examples in U.S. consular offices, or was their career first and foremost, and we didn't see too much of that?
1: The only one that's been documented, and this doesn't mean that's the only one that there is, but the only one that's been documented is a man named Hiram Bingham, who was in the Marseille consulate. Um, He worked with an American journalist named Varian Fry, um, and they were able to get, this was under a a different immigration law that was, um, it wasn't a law, it was actually an executive order that was issued in 1940. Um, to give, after the fall of France, um, to give emergency visas. So these were not immigration visas. These were temporary. You can come to the United States to a list of people who were considered to be superior people who needed to be gotten out of France. And this is actually the way um, some of the important artists like Marc Chagall and uh, Jacques Lipschitz and uh, Marcel Duchamp were able to leave France and um, you still needed, I mean, you needed to be on this list. Um, which was, you know, drawn up and uh, argued about um, by a president's advisory committee and the State Department who hated this idea entirely and also tried to sabotage it. But then you also needed to get the visa from the consulate in Marseille. The consul general there was um, not helpful at all. But there was this one, I would go so far as to say, renegade consular officer named Hiram Bingham, who was issuing visas Um for his trouble, he got transferred to Argentina yeah. in the midst yeah. of this, 1941.
2: And this is how Lauren Bacall gets out of Casablanca. <laughs> right. Right. And thank goodness for that, right? <laughs> so we've been talking about the government apparatus here, uh, the law. Congress's apparent indifference to the way the law is being interpreted.
1: In some ways, it makes sense. Um, like Samuel Dickenstein and Emmanuel Seller, who were both Jewish congressmen from New York. So they were making a stink about this the whole time. But yeah, but generally, yes.
2: So we've got that in Congress. We've got the White House with its quote unquote blind spot. We've got the State Department who's aggressively trying to deny entry, notwithstanding the law. And you've got now the private organizations who are really the counterweight against all this, the emergency committee, the Rockefeller Foundation, the American Friends Service Committee. So talk about what's going on in the private sector in an effort to help people get out of Germany and Europe generally.
1: Right. So um, as I mentioned, um, the emergency committee in aid of displaced German and then foreign scholars, but it became clear that the problem was not just in Germany was established in 1933 and it was an offshoot of and the international student. I forget the exact name of it, but it was an offshoot of an, another organization and they understood this, right? They understood how the quota system worked. They understood that scholars were being fired. And and a lot of this was personal connections. I mean, another thing about the scholars was that um, there was an international community of scholars. So people, Who were in the United States had made, be had studied in Germany, become friends with people in these German schools, started getting letters from, from them saying, I just lost my job. Can you help me? Can you get me a job? Um, At this point, I should also bring in the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, because one of the things that organization had decided to do after World War one was to try and restore The German Academy to try and restore international relations. So they had made um, a lot of grants to scholars in Germany and Austria, Um, and they would periodically make trips to to um, Germany and you know visit all of the people who had gotten grants. And when they make their trip in April of 1933, they find people sobbing in the hallways, um, people who had gotten fired. So they understood, you know, and again, this is very at the very beginning of the Nazi regime, that this was a problem and decided that what because of the way the State Department was interpreting this, that what they needed to do where they could be helpful would be to try and convince American universities to make these job offers so that people would satisfy the State Department's requirements for non-quota visas. Um, And they understood that this was going to be difficult, um, you know, partially because they understood and anticipated the anti-Semitism of the American Academy. Um, But also this is a depression. You know, there have been faculty fired at American universities. So they knew sort of saying hire somebody else was not going to be, who's not an American, was not going to be an easy sell. So what they decided to do was, first of all, to make these appointments temporary, so enough to satisfy um, the State Department that this is what you were going to be doing when you came to the United States, but not such a burden that universities would think, now I'm, you know, saddled with someone for the next 30 years, so they would be temporary And probably even more important, the emergency committee um, would pay half of the person's salary. So the universities would not have to be using their own funds for half of the salaries. And then um, both the universities and the emergency committee would try and get um, other foundations to kick in the other half of the salary. So the idea would be the university um, would not have to pay For this person's salary, this would come from outside funds. And at some point, the Rockefeller Foundation actually when it's it can no decided it could no longer make um, grants to people in Germany, because the German Um, universities had been so corrupted, not only by firing their Jewish and non-Aryan faculty, but also just the whole Nazi system had taken over and there was no longer any academic freedom or anything even close to that in German universities. So they decided in 1936, we can't continue to fund people in Germany. They took those funds and began funding people who um, got jobs in American universities. So that's where the um, and, and, you know, as part of this too, I should say it's some of it of these organizations, but then there also are some very important and um, dedicated individual scholars at individual universities who, for whatever reason, um, you know, sometimes it's direct personal connection. Um, sometimes it's just because they're mentions <laughs> um, and they're not all Jewish who just decide, this is horrible. We have to do something about this and begin, you know either working with these committees, and usually it's like at many, many levels, they're working with the committees, they're working individually to try and find um, universities who will make offers to these scholars who have been have been fired. So you have to have
2: a two year job offer to be a classroom teacher as we said no librarians no researchers two year contract to be a classroom teacher we have rockefeller and others agreeing to pay half of the salaries sometimes even more i think
1: but usually keep... like a half from the emergency committee and then half from the rockefeller and other foundation or the carnegie foundation or a few others so that's most right. of the time these are fully funded positions
2: that's right so the university doesn't have if you will the excuse, I'll use that word, to say, you know, we'd love to, but we just can't afford it. They said, fine, you know, you don't have to afford it. All you have to do is extend a a two-year contract for a classroom teacher role, and you're all set. And so that takes us, in some sense, to the universities. And you and I have spent enough times in universities to understand that there's a tone at the top set by presidents of universities. So tell us, if you will, I want to say on a sliding scale from good to terrible, how did the university presidents operate in request of these positions by letters directly or through these charitable foundations? How did that play out? You know, and you can pick a few universities if you want to, including your alma mater, if you want. I don't think mine existed. So feel free to tell us how it worked within the university as these things start coming to them.
1: Right. So I think probably the first thing to say is that there is no concerted effort on the part of university presidents. There is a somewhat of an effort that Harvard leads in 1939. I think that's the the right year, but it kind of fizzles out and they never really have very much commitment to it. So this tends to be done just kind of on an individual university by university level. Um, And there are some who definitely step up. Um, and are willing to take on, who hire some scholars um, probably out of proportion to, I mean, or at least these are smaller universities. Vassar is, I think, one example of that. Certainly, um, you know, here you have to be careful because the Institute for Advanced Study, which was not affiliated with Princeton University, just happened to be in Princeton, takes on a number of scholars. I mean, the new school um, for social research, actually establishes an exile university, um, which is their first graduate program. They set that up in 1934, and it is um, exclusively to hire people who have been fired. So those are some of the the positive examples. On the you know negative side, um, you have institutions like Columbia and Harvard, um, who you would think would be most inclined because of their Locations because of their size, because of their connections to German universities, would be um, the most willing to, to take on the burden. Um, and there, what you have, particularly at Harvard, is you have a number of individual um, scholars, particularly Harlow Sh- uh, Shapley, who was in the head of the astronomy department or the planetarium, I guess. Um, who are making concerted efforts, um, the, at least the initial, the earlier dean of the medical school is doing this, but what they find is resistance from, um, the, particularly from the university president. Now, Harvard does hire a number of scholars. So, um, you know, it's important not to overlook the fact that they did, but I think there's a general consensus that given, Its resources, given it's Harvard, um, it's nowhere near what some of the smaller, poorer schools were able to do. Um, And then when you look at the history of the university president, it becomes, you know, he also was not someone who was particularly inclined to want too many Jews at his university. Um, There are a number of people he individually sabotaged. I mean, here's the thing, you know, most of these offers are coming from departments you know so i mean it it's hiring like any other hiring which is kind of one of the weird things about it and certainly as an academic to sort of like listen to these conversations about well you know they publish but maybe not in the best of journals and you're realizing oh, my God, if you say no to this person, they're going to be deported to Poland. <laughs> but the academics are just doing their regular, you know, we're, will they be a good colleague kind of thing? Um, but in the case of Harvard, you even have cases where the, the department say, yes, we want this person, and the university president um, refuses.
2: And what I found chilling in the book was to read what you've just described about how the – universities, whether it be at the president level or at the departmental level, are making what are essentially life and death decisions on the basis of, well, was this article in this journal adequate enough to meet our standards here? I mean, for goodness sakes, we're talking about saving a person's life and you're worried about the, the merits of their scholarship in some obscure German periodical that no one but perhaps you read?
1: Right. And then there's also um the too Jewish part of the conversation, um, which I have to say was as or maybe even more shocking to me, um, which is that several of these universities, Hamilton College is one example where they said, we want an Aryan. <laughs> We're looking for a chemistry professor, but we only if only if, you know, and they say this to the emergency committee, only if you can find us an Aryan. Um, will we be be willing to hire someone um, or other universities that said, well, maybe we'll consider someone as long as they're not too Jewish, um, meaning and they sometimes were referring to bloodline, you know, tell me that they are, um, you know, have, conver- have their parents have converted, they've been raised as Protestant or as Catholic, they don't have Jewish attributes, um, then even if they have some ancestry, that might be okay, um, as long as they're not too Jewish. And that is a constant refrain in this communication. And and the refugee committees, and I, you know, I understand why they did it, but they participated in it too. I mean, when um, the emergency committee gets the note from Hamilton saying we want an Aryan. They don't say, Oh my God, what do you mean you want an Aryan? They say, we'll do our best to find you an Aryan. <laughs> um, cause they're, you know, they're trying to save people's lives, but they also do the, this person doesn't really seem very Jewish. It'll be okay. And nobody knew that they were Jewish until Hitler came to power. And I mean, that's part of the very much a part of the conversation.
2: So, all right, we have the State Department, we've got the consular offices, we've got the White House, we see how it's playing out in the universities. The one Jew rule, there's not too many Jews, There's he's too Jewish, the filter fish is, is not good, the matzo balls sink. I mean, the criteria Correct. applied is shocking when, as you say, this was a time when flexibility was required and they adhered to rigorous standards of review that are almost inexplicable other than anti-Semitism, it seems to me. Um, Because the Brits, they organized, the academics in the UK organized, right? right? Yeah,
1: yeah, Yeah. they did a better job. They did a better job in a smaller country and a country that is, you know, was much more threatened, right? Um, You know, some of this is going on when bombs are falling on Great Britain. You know, we don't have bombs falling on American universities.
2: Right, and they made better accommodations, so I'd like to, in the last part of the interview, say this has been illuminating, and but we've been talking in you know, sort of academic terms. I want to talk now in on personal level, and let's start with how this played out in individual cases, and we can walk through a couple of them in the time we have. Why don't we start with Hedrick hinsey yeah.
1: Um, So I I should just say, throughout the book, I follow eight scholars in particular. Um, Five of them are women. I didn't sort of do that deliberately, but I do think, um, I think for a a couple of reasons, um, they had harder times getting jobs in the United States. I also think, and this is part of the poignancy of it. Oftentimes, um, they were caring for elderly parents, um, and so were not willing to even try to immigrate until later on when either their relative had died or it looked as if they had no other way out. Um, With Hedwig uh, Heinze, she was um, from a a wealthy Jewish family in Munich, um, was a historian. Her specialty was the French Revolution, um she had gone to the university of berlin was one of the um it was the first woman who was on the um uh teaching classes at the university of berlin in the in the history department she had married her old much older professor um who was also a very well known uh historian at the university of berlin um in 1933 she is fired from her position at the University of Berlin and her positions editing historical journals. Um, you know, and one of this is done by her dissertation advisor. He's head of the journal and he he fires her. Um, another one describes her as a disgusting Jewess. I mean, just to give you some sense of the the language that was used. Um, she then goes to to France. Um, she's in France for two years, you know, and again, her specialty is the, the French Revolution. Um, But her husband, who is Protestant, and she had converted to Protestantism, um, is still in Berlin, he's ill, he's aged. So she returns to Berlin in 1935, um, to care for him. Um, But by the time it gets to be 1938, and certainly after, after Kristallnacht, after the big pogrom happens throughout the German Reich, um, she decides, I can't stay here any longer. And, you know, and this is part of the of dealing with, with academics. I mean, one of the things she says is not just my life is, you know, threatened. I'm 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 afraid I'm not gonna be able to continue to live with my husband in our apartment, but she's I can't use the libraries anymore. You know, it's like they're such committed researchers that oftentimes, you know, the daily struggles are, are terrible, but the fact they can't continue their life's work is also um, weighing on them considerably. Um, so Hedwig flees to the Netherlands at this point. The Netherlands is not occupied by Germany. Um, and at at that point, um, she had actually, because she was taking care of her husband, had not really made any attempts at immigrating to the United States. But at this point in 1939, she realizes that she has to And she is fortunate enough to get an offer from the New School for Social Research to come in and teach there. So she actually gets one of these very coveted um, two-year appointments. Um, You know, she is considered a great scholar. She still is. I mean, people in in Germany sort of still read what what she wrote then. Um, But then, of course, the Germans invade invade, um, the Netherlands before she's able to immigrate.
2: And in the end, what happens?
1: So in the end, she tries to get um she, you know, she's she's gotten the offer from the new school, she tries to get a uh, visa from the Rotterdam consul, um, the American consul. They first say to her, you haven't been teaching for two years, that old excuse. And she hadn't been, right? Because she got fired in 1933. Um, They also said she's too old. She's 57. They also that's the other thing the consul did is even if you had an offer from a university, sometimes they'd second guess it and say, oh, you know, you may have had this offer because she had the offer from the new school. They might have said, um, but, you know, we think you're too old to actually become a tech classroom teacher Um, and they don't give her a visa. Then the Rotterdam consul gets closed um, and gets bombed. Um, And she does. So she doesn't have any of her records. Then the the Rockefeller Foundation and the New School decide that they're going to try. And this is was the last escape for a lot of people get a visa to Cuba. Um, She actually does get a visa from Cuba. Um, She is on her way to Lisbon, which is one of the last ports that is opened. Um, in 1941 to to get to Lisbon and then ideally to get on a boat to Cuba and wait in Cuba and then um, wait, hopefully be able to come to the United States for her new school offer as she's literally as she's traveling to Lisbon. She gets word that her visa has been revoked. Um, She goes back to the Netherlands Um and maybe as sort of the last indignity, you know, they take away, she's getting a small, her husband has died, but she's still getting his small pension. They take away his pension, and then they demand that she bring in her silver tea set. Um, the Germans are, like, confiscating all the property of Jews who are in exile. Um, and at that point in 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 this, actually in the summer of 1942, when the deportations from, from the Netherlands have already um, started, she actually um, commits suicide.
2: Rather than go to Auschwitz, which is where she
1: was headed, rather than to be ported to Westerbrook and then on her way to Auschwitz. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I want to do one more and then I want you to give us, you know, sort of final thoughts. Uh, another one who you followed was Marie Anna Sherman, the Austrian physicist. So this is Austria, not German. Heitze was uh, German, this is Austrian. How does it play out for? Marie Anna Sherman.
1: Yeah, so what I mean, Germany annexes Austria in March of 1938. And then as people have often said what it took five years for um, them to do the Nazis to do to the German Jews, they did in five months to the Austrian Jews. So she's at the University of Vienna. Um, she is a researcher, she had actually, you know, come up to get uh, what we might consider a tenured position, and it's denied it, um, probably because she's um, because she was a woman and she was Jewish. Um, she gets fired from her position, um, and she at this point tries desperately to to immigrate. the The way she um, and and many, um, I mean, one of the other sort of heroic organizations here was the American Association of University Women, um, which was there was an American. Um, branch of it, it still exists, um, but at the, they were also international, so they had lots of connections with, um, female academics in, who were in, um, European countries. So they started getting, um, these requests and the, um, woman there whose name was Esther Brunauer, um, tries very hard to get her a position. Um, she isn't able to, to get her any offers and eventually anna marie uh, sherman is, Sherwin is um uh it, from vienna she's deported to a a small extermination center um and i'm not sure i'm pronouncing it correctly called mala Trostanek in uh she's actually she's deported to a a, a a ghetto um in um in not poland um but in eastern europe um and then she actually it and, and here's the other thing. She's writing letters from the ghetto. So, you know, you're getting this is that that getting information from the ghetto, um, including to some of friends of hers about how she is having to sell her last dress. She doesn't have enough food. Um, and this is, you know, part of the record. And then, a, and we don't actually literally know what happened to her. Um, she either um, died in the ghetto from starvation or disease or from the periodic um, machine gunning and killing of people there, or was uh, sent to the probably the Sobibor um, extermination center to be killed. But she she did not survive either.
2: There are of these eight people, one or two. And I'll leave it to the reader to read the story of, say, Hedwig. Cohn, who has a happy ending comparatively, so we can see how the system worked. In the two cases we dealt with, the system failed these academics. Mm -hmm. In the case of Hedrick Cohn, it was a success. So the reader can follow and see essentially how it should have worked for everybody but didn't.
1: You report in part um, because two universities stepped up, Sweet Byer College and Wellesley College.
2: And it's important to note that Brandeis didn't exist. Brandeis University didn't exist until forty-eight, so that wasn't an option. You did have yeshiva, you had Jewish theological seminary, so you had some sort of Jewish uh, right. universities that were, but they're small, relatively speaking. Hebrew Union College too. Say it again.
1: Hebrew Union College, which is Hebrew the, Union, the, yeah. The form yeah.
2: Of seminary. So the chilling statistic. Uh, That I pulled out of the book is you write that between Pearl Harbor and the war's end, the percentage of quotas from Axis controlled countries that were actually filled was 10%. 10%. 10%. So what's, I guess the question is, what's the Takeaway, and how do you see what was happening then, Laurel, in relationship to what's happening on university campuses today in the aftermath of the attacks in Israel of last week
1: so that's really that's really tough. I mean, I think one of the things that I've said, and this will even speak a bit to my own naivete. I I teach a course called America and the Holocaust um, to undergraduates. And up until very recently, um, I taught the course like um, American anti-Semitism was a thing of the past. You know, certainly you look at university faculties and there's no longer one Jew rule. Right. Um, You know, the Jews have been. Um, quite successful in the United States. They were on the verge of it in the first half of the 20th century. But certainly if you look at the second half of the 20th century, you have to say this is a minority group has done extremely well. And, you know, I wasn't an idiot. I understood there are neuro Nazis and some people with bad intentions out there and, you know, people on the right and on the left who um were not particularly sympathetic to Jews, but this was mostly history that we had overcome in some very profound way. Um, And now uh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I had already begun to change somewhat, um, but I think this has hit it, made it even more clear that, and it's, you know, it's, it's weird because, because of the success of American Jews, I think it's very, and for good reason, right? I mean, it's very hard to say that, that, we are an oppressed minority in the United States. I mean, you know, even you look at Joe Biden's cabinet, right, compared to Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet, you know, he had Morgenthau in the cabinet, and that was it. And that's not true for Joe, Joe Biden. So, you know, we have, or in the media, we have moved into positions of influence, you know, we were accused of that in the um, first half of the 20th century and it was almost not true totally. And now there, there is some truth to it. But the, the difficulty of, of people seeing this history and acknowledging it and, and, and acknowledging that it doesn't go away because it's so deep. Um, particularly, you know, in the Western canon, you know, this is a, this is mostly you know, not something that's necessarily happening in Asia. This is like, like you know, the, the European countries and, and, and us as a, a beneficiary of that legacy, you know, and I think it has to do with religion and, and lots of other things, but to, to get people to recognize this, I mean, I, I mean, here's, an, you know, I don't want to talk too much about what's happening now, but, you know, um, I think for all, Jewish Americans now, we're in a state of mourning and catastrophe, and I don't think most other Americans are. I mean, they might express some sympathy for what's happening, and they certainly don't think it's a good thing that's going on. I don't, for most Americans, I don't think that. But I don't think they understand how how deeply this traumatizes us. Not only because we have friends or family there, which most of us do, but also because this brings up such deep things and feelings of like you you aren't home anywhere. I mean, that's kind of the history of the Jewish people, right, is you, you know, you're kicked out of um Canaan, and you go into the diaspora, and then you go to one country and get kicked out, and then you go to another country and get kicked out, and then you go to another country and get kicked out, and you go to Germany, and you think you build this, like, relatively prosperous community, and you're decimated, and then we think, okay, but you come to the United States, and we're great, and you go to Israel. Now, at least you have your own country and your own weapons and your ability to fight, and yet it seems like the same thing is happening so um it's really very profound
2: <laughs> it is profound and i would invite the listening audience to spend some time looking at the statements of various university presidents in respect of what's going on there are some very milk toast my words uh statements of well this is terrible but these anti-Israel, pro-Hamas protests on college campuses is First Amendment, and we will just allow it, and others like the chancellor of the City University of New York, coming out much stronger language to say, this is just, it's not tolerable. We can't tolerate this. We don't tolerate cross burnings on campuses or hangings in effigy. This is not acceptable. So, it's an interesting thing to see, university by university, how they're responding. I don't know how it, it played out at your university, but it's interesting to behold, I think. the university Laurel.
1: president put out, a, put out a good statement.
2: Yeah, he Good. Did. So I can't thank you enough for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. The book is called Well Worth Saving. American Universities, Life and Death Decisions on Refugees from Nazi Europe. Laura Leff, thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I I appreciate having a chance to talk about the book.
2: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.
0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons.